Uh, today uh, we're going to just look a bit more into the Christmas story. We'll take a break from our series on Overwhelmed and we'll pick that up next Sunday. Uh, but first of all, I'm going to hit a couple first uh, frequently asked Christmas questions. <laughs> first one, uh, was Jesus actually born on December 25th? And the answer to that question is pretty much most certainly not. Uh, most people would put his birth somewhere in uh, the fall in September. In fact, some of the uh, better scholarly work around the birth of Jesus, interestingly enough, would actually put his birth on September 11th, uh, 3 BC. As a scholar, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser says, no other date produced textually, traditionally, astronomically, because there was some sort of star in the sky, accounts for all the the data, and so this is sort of the, the best theory put forward, that it was probably sometime in the fall, uh, perhaps actually on September 11th. Then the question asks, well, well, why in the world do we celebrate Christmas on uh, December 25th? And the reason is, it has nothing to do with some pagan celebration turned into a Christmas celebration. That is just kind of, uh, go to internet theology, that's actually not correct. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the reason we celebrate uh, December 25th uh, Christmas on December 25th has to do with the early church. And the early church had this belief, generally, that Jewish prophets or heroes of the Jewish world, that they were always conceived on the day that they died. This was the sort of the general belief of the day, that when uh, a major prophet died, that that was the same day they were conceived. And so we look at the church in the West. It's different from the church in the East because they're working off different calendars. Church in the West, West put the death of Jesus, Easter, at March 25th. And if that was the same day of conception, you add nine months. And you end up with December 25th. The Eastern Church, working off a, a death of April 6th, you add nine months, and you end up on January 6th. And so we still see some Eastern churches, like the Armenian Church today, would celebrate Christmas on January 6th. Uh, so the other question, of course, has to do with it. It's kind of this idea out there that was uh, December 25th a pagan festival? Because you talk to some religious groups and some people who believe a lot of false internet theology uh, will say things like, you know, the Christians took over this pagan celebration and, and therefore we shouldn't celebrate Christmas today. And there are some people who will teach that we shouldn't, shouldn't celebrate it because it used to be a pagan festival. For one, just because something was pagan doesn't mean that we, we can't engage in it. God takes a lot of pagan things and redeems them. I mean, I was a pagan, and I've been redeemed. <laughs> uh, we look at the idea of even in the Old Testament when they, they would stack stones for an altar. I mean, the pagans did that. Or uh, even if when we stand around a bonfire, well, pagans do that too. And there are a lot of things that can be redeemed for Jesus. There's some things that can't, but some things that can't. But December, December 25th actually had originally nothing to do with a pagan celebration. Uh, it wasn't until the year 274 A.D. that Emperor Aurelian uh, made December 25th a festival to the unconquered sun. That happened in the year uh, 274 A.D. A hundred years before that day, Christians had already been talking about December 25th as the birth of Christ. Because again, they were working off the date of Easter and then conception, so it ends up in uh, December 25th. So a hundred years before it was a festival to the, to the unconquered sun, uh, the Christians were talking about December 25th in the West and January 6th in the East as the birth of Christ. As uh, one PhD scholar said, 
The pagan feast which Emperor Aurelian instituted on the date in the year 274 was not only an effort to use the winter solstice to make a political statement, but also almost most certainly an attempt to give a pagan significance to a date already important to Roman Christians. And so this idea that, that Christians took over a pagan celebration is actually very the opposite. Uh, it was a Christian date, and Emperor Aurelian brought in the celebration of the sun on that date. Uh, December 25th, as the date of Christ's birth appears to owe nothing whatsoever to pagan influences upon the practice of the church during or after Constantine's time. It is wholly unlikely to have been the actual date of Christ's birth, but it arose entirely from the efforts of early Latin Christians to determine the historical date of Christ's death. And so, uh, uh, so we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. May not actually be his birthday, but I don't think God's going up there like, oh, you have the wrong date. He's uh, not like that. He's like, awesome. <laughs> Any day that you celebrate me is awesome. So uh, we celebrate the birth of, of Christ and celebrate Christmas together. And uh, so we're going to take some time just to read the Christmas story. I found in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew. Luke chapter 1. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And Luke chapter 2. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, firstborn a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, and cloths, sorry, and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and an earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And in Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He then sent the, uh, them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. And that was code for take his life. <laughs> And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. Now this Christmas story is actually a very strange Christmas story. And it's a very odd story, and especially in light of all the hopes and dreams and expectations that the people had for this coming Messiah. I mean, they uh, thought in those days sort of the typical assumptions about the Messiah, well, that he'd be like a superhero Jesus. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy or, you know, Avengers kind of a Jesus. Uh, superhero Jesus. That's what they expected that he would be like. And uh, they expected, just a typical assumption of, of, of the Jewish people of the day, that he would be born into royalty, that he would be a powerful, dignified, earthly king, that he would support their religious system, that he would defeat all their enemies, and that he would crack down on sinners. This was kind of the hope of the Messiah. And then you read the Christmas story and you realize that all of their assumptions about the coming Messiah were just completely turned upside down. All of their hopes for this coming Jesus, I mean, they were just kind of blown out of the water because how Jesus appeared and how he lived completely turns us all upside down. It's a very strange kind of Christmas. I mean, he was not born into royalty. He was born uh, by a teenage peasant girl who was not all that rich. 
They suggest maybe around 14 or 15 years of age. Uh, they got married very young back in those days. Uh, she was not born to this royal family and, and palace that they kind of thought they would. He was bo born uh, um, not into royalty. And he didn't come sort of as this dignified earthly king in terms of, uh, you know, being born in a palace or an amazing hospital. Uh, didn't have all the, the special royal visitors, like all the top Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the, the elite of the day didn't show up at his birth. And in fact, the only people that show up at his birth are, at least initially, are shepherds. And uh, according to scholar Craig Keener, that most people of status throughout the empire viewed shepherds as lowly and sometimes as rough, unclean, or even dangerous. You realize that the first invitation that went out at the birth of Jesus was not to the religious elite. It was not to the, the pastors or, you know, the amazing people of the day or, you know, the officials. It was like going out on the street corners and finding some homeless people and bringing them. I mean, it was the shepherds. They're sort of the outcasts, the people nobody wanted to hang around with. That was the very first invitation to the birth of the Messiah Jesus, the Savior of the world. I mean, it's a very strange Christmas indeed. And the only special people who do actually show up, the three wise men, are not even from the local area. They're from like some distant place in the east, and they show up. But it's just an upside-down Christmas compared to what the people of the day would have figured. And of course, they thought that this Jesus, when he would be born, he would come and support their religious system. Uh, but we, we know the story. Uh, he has major conflict with the religious system. Uh, the religious system, in many ways, he, he, I mean, he overturns the tables in the temple. In fact, he looks at the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and at one point he actually says this to them. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Instead of supporting the religious system, he looks at the religious system and says, your religious system is demonic. <laughs> it has gone to hell. It's completely wrong. Uh, he didn't support the religious system at all. A very strange Christmas. Uh, they also figured he would come in and, of course, defeat all their enemies, uh, kick out the Romans, and yet Jesus does no such thing. Uh, in fact, he comes along, some of the Ro Roman soldiers at, at some point, you remember the centurion whose servant had uh, fallen sick, and Jesus heals the servant, and then he looks at this Roman soldier and then he turns to this Jewish crowd who had all these ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. The Messiah was, the Messiah was supposed to get rid of all the enemies. Jesus looks at the crowd following him, and he says, I tell you, talking about this Roman soldier, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I mean, the very one that they thought they were, the Messiah was supposed to kill and, and remove, Jesus lifts this one up and says, he's an example of faith even more so than what I've seen in Israel. I mean, it's just a strange Christmas, a strange way the Messiah came and lived. And then they thought Jesus would come, and he would be born, and he would crack down on all the sinners. That he would deal with those tax collectors, and he would deal with the prostitutes, and, and deal with the, the Samaritans, and all those people. And Jesus again comes, and he does the exact opposite that they expected. He begins to hang around tax collectors and sinners. And in fact, we see that even the disciples got this wrong. 
In Luke chapter 9, we see this kind of expectation coming out of the disciples' heart that, that Jesus was there and he's going to crack down the sinners and get rid of the enemies. It says, Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. And in the Jewish mind, the Samaritans were kind of the, the outcasts, the evil people, the sinners. But the people, people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? Uh, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Do you want us to burn them up, get rid of them after all so the Messiah does? I thought what Elijah did in the Old Testament. We should do that again. Because that was the, kind of the expectation of the Messiah. And Jesus looks at them and it says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. This is not the way it works anymore. It's not the way we carry out things. I mean, their expectation of Jesus cracking down on sinners, it gets thrown upside down. I mean, we see in Matthew 9, it says Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, who was a tax collector, and many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. He actually was hanging around sinners. Now, the very people that they wanted to remove, Jesus began to eat with them, and to eat with somebody in that culture meant like a special connection. It meant you loved them, you cared for them. Uh, he began to hang around them. And then, of course, we see this, this, again, this idea of this Messiah should deal with the sinners in John chapter 8. The Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, brought a woman who had been caught in the very, uh, in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? In other words, they're putting this woman in front of Jesus saying, you're the Messiah, so people say, and you're supposed to crack down on sinners. What are you going to do with the sinner? And then we know Jesus begins to, to write in the sand, and many suspect that maybe he was writing down the sin of the various religious leaders that were standing around. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are you or your accusers? Didn't one of them, uh, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Just comes alongside this woman, does not condemn her, but lifts her head and lifts her to a, a higher level. I mean, this is what the Messiah does. Uh, the Messiah just totally blew their expectations uh, of what a Messiah would do. It's just totally, completely upside down. It's just, it's just a strange Christmas. And we need to understand that this Jesus, uh, he is God. That God manifests. This is what it says in John chapter 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in verse 14, So the Word became human and made His home among us. This Jesus, this Messiah that completely turned everybody's ex expectations upside down, was God in the flesh. This was not just sort of a lesser God or some sort of angel or some mighty prophet. This was God who poured himself into human flesh and walked this planet. And he did not walk in a way that everybody expected. I mean, the religious leaders who had studied the Bible, studied the Old Testament, had all these expectations, and Jesus shows up, and it's completely different. And sometimes God does this to us. We think God's going to act in one way, and he completely turns it upside down. You know, we think God should sick that person and get that person, and all of a sudden God blesses that person. I mean, God does things that completely blow our minds at times, and he does it here. This is God come to earth. 
Now, if I were God and I came to earth, I would do things differently. And I would want people to know that I'm God. I think I would, you know, maybe go pick up Mount Everest and float it slowly around the world so people knew how powerful I was, right? Uh, I'd have some sort of mighty palace or something. But uh, this is the way humans think. And it's interesting, uh, when you study world religions, if you've ever taken a world religions class, or uh, maybe you are part of a different religion, or you study the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, you begin to realize that most gods and goddesses and, and religions out there, that we fashion our gods with the kind of power that we as humans lust after. Interesting. That we as humans lust after, we want, we want to kill our enemies, so we're going to make our god a god who kills our enemies. Uh, uh, we as humans lust after control, and so we make our gods being all controlling and force people to do all these things. And we often fashion our gods or our religions uh, after uh, the kind of power we lust after as humans. But then there's Jesus. He was just completely, radically, totally different because he does not come to earth and, 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 and he's not fashioned after our own human desires. He comes to earth and actually hangs on a cross and he dies for his enemies. And as his enemies are killing him, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Amen. This is why one of the reasons that Christianity testifies as true, because we'd never invent this. <laughs> I mean, it's just opposite of what we, we would think in this world. In fact, the very power of God is, is not defined in his being able to control people or kill his enemies. The very power of God in the Bible is actually focused in on the cross. As Jesus hung there, dying for his enemies, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The Bible says that is where the power of God is revealed. In 1 Corinthians, it says, this is Paul writing, who was an apostle. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. And not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. What is the very power of, the God, of God? The crucifixion. Because there, God, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Father, reveals the heart of who God is more than any other place. And Romans says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. I mean, the power of God is revealed completely differently than all the power of all these other gods and goddesses in, 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 uh, of just our world. It's revealed in a self-sacrificial, other-centered, enemy-dying kind of love. It's a strange Christmas that he would show up the way he did in such humility. No fanfare, no major people there, just a couple dirty shepherds and some wise men from the east, and then you don't hear anything about it his life for like 30 years. And if I showed up as God, I want, I, every day I want people to know who I am. But he kind of walks as a nobody for 30 years and he begins to minister and he begins to love and to heal. I mean, it's just completely different than we, what we would expect of, of a God showing up on, on this earth. First uh, John 4, 8 says that God is love. That God's very essence is, is love. It doesn't say that God is a loving being. It says God is love. In other words, God cannot be unloving. Uh, God cannot just be 90% love and 10% something else because he actually is love. The very definition of love. And then sometimes some religious people come along and say, well, what is the definition of love? 
Because we always want to shape our God into our own desires for human power. So, well, what is love? Well, the Bible tells us what love is. In 1 John 3, 16, it says, this is how we know what love is. In other words, this is how we know how God is defined. God is love. So how do we define love? We can find out how God is defined. This is how he is defined. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so many gods are defined by their ability to control or to blow things up or whatever, to get rid of their enemies. God says, I'm going to define myself by a self-sacrificial hanging on a cross, dying for my enemies, saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is this love that emanates from Jesus and his birth and his life. Uh, it's just an incredible story. But this text also goes on. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then it says this. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I mean, one of the reasons Jesus showed up this way was to make a point about who he is. That he's different than any other God out there. He's different than any other religion out there. That he came uh, to reveal who the Father really is. I mean, if we have any questions about who God is, we just look to Jesus. And his most defining moment where the power of God is most clearly revealed, the place where who God is is most clearly revealed is Jesus hanging on a cross, dying for his enemies. That is the God we serve. And he loves you so much, cares for you. He's an amazing God. But I think one of the other reasons he showed up this way was to give us an example of how we are to live. So again, we often fashion our gods after our own human lusts and desires, and, and we often want to live that way. That I want to control people. I want to control my spouse and my friends, and I want to control all the things around me. Or you know, I want to become rich and famous and have everybody look at me and go, wow, you're amazing. I mean, those are the kind of things we lust after, lust after. Jesus says, I want you to live completely different. I don't want you to live like the ways of this world. I want, to live, I want you to live completely different. Just as I came in humility, I want you to live in humility. Just as I care for the, 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 the sinners, I want you to be care, care for those kinds of people. I don't want you pulling away. I want you drawing close to those kind of people. Uh, just as I didn't come with, with fanfare and whatever, I just, I just, just, just walk the way Jesus walked. And so he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In fact, in Philippians, it talks about this, this life of Jesus, how it is to be our life. In Philippians 2, it says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Consider others better than yourselves. That's exactly what Jesus did. Always lifting up those around them. Just, just considering others better than, than themselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who came in humility, who loved people, who put others ahead of himself, who was a blessing rather than uh, someone who's just taking in from other people. And says, your attitude, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what kind of attitude is that? Who? Being in the very nature of God. 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. In other words, even though he was God, he didn't walk around trying to show off and, and, and kill enemies and, you know, you know, do whatever, you know, a God might do. He came in to love and to be, to be humble, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus invites you into a different kind of way of living. That kind of living that goes in many ways against the grain of this world. Which is about getting power and defeating enemies and whatever it might be. It's a life of humility and a life of loving others and a life of walking in the line of the heart, the heart of the Father. I always see this in John chapter 13. This is when Jesus, again, it just, he just, it's just such a strange Christmas. It's just an upside down world that he lived. This is when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. None of the disciples wanted to do it. Because after all, we as humans are always trying to be better than everybody else. Uh, we're trying to show everybody else how wonderful we are. And, and so the disciples, I'm not washing your feet because I don't want to look less. You know, I don't want to do something like that too, too humiliating or whatever. But Jesus comes. And being the God of this universe, he washes the disciples' feet. He does the, the most humble, low task. And he washes the disciples' feet. And then it says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one you sent him. And yet... We often, as servants, try to be greater than our master. And Jesus comes in humility. He lifts up others as higher than himself. He loves. He's self-sacrificial. And it just he does these incredible things for people. He's just this, this, this humble leader. And, and yet we walk around like we're greater. Like we need to control everybody around us and force people into our mold. And we've got to get rid of our enemies and crack down on that person. And, and Jesus said, look, I'm your master. And no servant is greater than the master. You to live as I have lived. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, this is one of the pathways to blessing, by the way. And Jesus very clearly says, if you do these things, if you live out the strange Christmas in your world, if you live out the strange way of living, you will be blessed if you do them. I tell you, you live out this kind of thing in your marriage, you will just have an awesome marriage. I mean, they just, all studies show that awesome marriages are made of two servant-hearted people who try to put the other person, who try to outserve each other. Uh, you'll be blessed in your marriage. You'll be blessed in your relationships. You will tend to have better friendships when, when you live this Jesus kind of lifestyle. You will have more effect on people uh, in this world. You know, I've done, done a lot of funerals in the life, and the, those ones that tend to have the, the most people and the most amazing words are people who, who tend to live this lifestyle, who serve and volunteer and put others ahead and, and don't live kind of the selfish, worldly life. You will be blessed if you do these things. And so just a short encouragement today to, to live out the strange Christmas story. 
Uh, live out the strange Christmas story in your marriage. Live it out in your relationships. Live it out at work. Uh, live it out in the ways you can because Jesus and his words are always faithful and true. You will be blessed if you do these things. So, Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And, Father, we thank you that we don't have to wonder what your character is like anymore. We don't have to wonder what your attitude is like. We don't have to wonder whether you love us or not because your son Jesus revealed to us perfectly who you are. You are a God who's incredibly loving, self-sacrificial, putting others ahead of yourself, that you are a God that is unlike any other God. And God, we thank you that your love is always lavished on us, your grace and your forgiveness. And God, we thank you for your power and, and all that you are. And God, we pray that you would help us to live into this more so as we live out this life. God, you'd help us have the same attitude as Jesus. You'd help us to live out this strange Christmas in, uh, in, in just all the aspects of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.